Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. An actor comes home to find his house burned to the ground and his wife standing in the rubble, distraught. He's beside himself with anger and he asks her, who did this? And his wife says, your agent. The actor says, my agent came to the house. What did he want? I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM, American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a showbiz joke from Seth Greenland, author of the new novel, The Angry Buddhist. That'll help break the ice. Later, we'll speak with Michael Diamond, a.k.a. Mike D., from hip-hop group The Beastie Boys. Also coming up, Liz Winstead, creator of The Daily Show, on the wardrobe malfunction that changed her life. Gene Ween on Rod McEwen and writer Gustavo Ariano on Mezcal, literally. But first, some news. But you, dear podcasters, get to skip the news and go straight to fun. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Welcome to The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. Later, musician Aaron Freeman, a.k.a. Gene Ween, talks about Rod McEwen. A.k.a. Rod McEwen. Exactly. His and, real name. And coming up, Parisians love-hate history with the Eiffel Tower. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. A New York Times report claiming a Walmart cover-up of widespread bribery in Mexico. The Supreme Court heard arguments on a controversial Arizona law that targets illegal immigrants. Meta World Peace suspended seven games without pay for his elbow to James Harden. Now for something you might not have heard, we are speaking with Josh Wolk. He is editorial director of Vulture, the New York Magazine culture blog. Josh, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Uh, I'm going to be talking about a story that popped up uh, from a parent friend of mine. Something else for me to worry about as a parent of young children. Apparently, teenagers are drinking hand sanitizers to get drunk. Oh, my goodness. What Whatever happened to good old sneaking a beer out of your dad's refrigerator? Too simple. And you got to drink 12 ounces of beer to do the trick, and it really only takes a couple of swigs of uh, Purell to really get the job done. Oh, man. Can you just drink it straight? Well, it's, uh, I mean, it's actually kind of serious. Six kids have turned up at the uh, emergency room in the San Fernando Valley from having done this, but they're, they're really quite scientific about the whole thing. Apparently, they cut it with salt to separate out the alcohol and get a, a wildly powerful shot. Oh, well, there man. goes my theory, because I thought they were drinking it because they were dumb. But <laughs> apparently, they're, the they're geniuses. <laughs> apparently, they're kind of genius. Although it raises the question, it's like, I'm, I'm, it's, it sounds like it's terrible. It's actually harmed a few kids. But I mean, is this really a trend? It's basically, they're reporting that it's six kids. And, you know, six kids are doing stupid things at any given moment <laughs> all over the, this great world of ours and have been since caveman days. So... <laughs> I, I just remember being a camp counselor and buying really cheap cigars and somebody mm-hmm. telling us if we put our heads down below our chest and if we smoked these terrible cigars, we would get a little buzz. And Yeah, and when, when that seems healthy, you know that things have progressed to I know, a that's, bad that's, place. That's practically herbal, what we were doing. <laughs> but you know, that's true. this whole thing is so amazing because you give kids this stuff to kill bacteria and now they use it to kill brain cells. I mean, I, well, everything parents are, are nagging their kids to do will eventually backfire. Like fi- finding some ways to look both ways before they cross the street and get drunk off that, I think, is the next thing. <laughs> That's right. They're going to keep doing it back and forth till they're dizzy. Get a, little, exactly. get a little head rush. Josh Wolk, thanks for the small talk. Sure. My pleasure. And now time for some way safer cocktails. 
This is the part of the show where we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our dry yet palatable history lesson with booze. Hmm. First, we tell you the history. This week, back in 1889, the Eiffel Tower opened to the public. Now, most folks at your dinner party will have nothing but great things to say about one of the most beloved landmarks ever. Mm. Yes. Our friend Michelle Phillippe is here to tell us about some people who didn't. Yep, they're called Parisians. But we'll get to them in a minute. Actually, the first folks to give the tower the raspberry were Spaniards. Engineer Gustav Eiffel originally hoped to build his monument in Barcelona, but the city thought it was too, well, weird. And it's hard to blame them. How pretty could 7,000 tons of riveted iron really be? Eiffel finally won a contest to build the tower as the entrance to the World's Fair in Paris. Still, no one could imagine wanting it around forever. The plan was to rip it down in 20 years. But the tower did gangbuster business right off the bat. Millions flocked to see what was then the tallest structure on the planet, about 1,000 feet high. And the locals hated it. Some of them anyway, including a few of the most famous artists in France. They filled newspapers with angry letters calling the tower a gigantic black factory chimney and a, quote, metal asparagus. Author Guy de Maupassant ate lunch in the tower every day because he said it was the only place in town he couldn't see it. Eventually, of course, Bohemians came to love the structure. And when it turned out to be a great radio tower, Paris sort of forgot about the whole tear it down in 20 years thing. Now it's the most visited monument in the world. So that's the history. Now for the drink to serve along with it, I am talking with Alan Walter at restaurant Iris in the French Quarter right here in New Orleans, Louisiana. Alan, you have heard the history. What drink does that inspire you to make? Well, it wasn't uh, difficult. Just yesterday I was uh, coming up with a drink with Lillet. Lillet, though, was uh, introduced about the same time as the Eiffel Tower, within uh, just a year or two. So it's very probable that people were out in the cafes drinking the first Lillet and reacting to the, the Eiffel Tower's existence. Hopefully a little more positively to the Lillet than they initially did to the Eiffel Tower. Well, maybe the Lillet uh, helped tame their indignation at it, you know. Let's see. What, so what is this drink? This drink is a uh, summery drink that has primarily lillet, a little bit of chartreuse, a little bit of a pine needle syrup that I make here. A pine needle syrup? Yeah, it's just one of the ingredients that's played with a lot lately. It's an extremely strong, very uh, volatile phenols in it. Volatile, like the French. I think it's appropriate. <laughs> All right, so how do you mix this thing? I use three ounces of lillet, just a half ounce of chartreuse, about a quarter ounce of this pine needle syrup, an egg white, and a little bit of citrus, uh, the juice of about a half a good sized lemon. I'm going to shake it extremely hard because of the egg white. I'll strain it and serve it in a, a glass that's vaguely redolent of the Eiffel Tower, a tall fluted glass. All right, I'm going to take a sip. Is that a good? Oh, man. That is like sipping a delicious, fragrant perfume. You know what, though? I think there is one thing that it could use. Mm -hmm. It's just a little bit of condescending attitude. (laughs) 
And Brendan, we should point out, we aired that cocktail segment on a past episode. Yes. But it seemed appropriate to run it this week. Right, since the Jazz Fest Music Festival begins this weekend in New Orleans. Indeed. And actually, a quick follow-up, Alan, that bartender, mm-hmm. he has since moved on to work at other New Orleans establishments including one called Eiffel. Amazing. That's a true story. They named a whole venue after that drink. It's remarkable. (laughs) It was just that good. We have such influence. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, you'll find this and all our recipes at our website. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click cocktails. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. Today, our guest is Aaron Freeman. Fans of his cult pop band Ween know him by his stage name Gene Ween. Aaron's forthcoming solo album is a tribute to Rod McEwen, the poet and musician whose songs have been recorded by everyone from Frank Sinatra to Madonna. So we asked Aaron to list a few favorites. Hello, my name is Aaron Freeman. I'm coming out with a record called Marvelous Clouds, covering the songs of Rod McEwen. McEwen started out as a poet. He coined the phrase, uh, make love, not war. In the Korean War, he came up with that. He was real big in the 60s and up until the mid-70s, and he's pretty much a renaissance man. I mean, he paints, he writes, he writes music. And here's my list of three favorite Rod McEwen songs. Number one, Seasons in the Sun, a beautiful piece of music, seemingly wonderful, but underminingly dark. I'd heard versions of it on the radio, very fluffy versions. We had joy, we had fun, we had seasons in the sun, but the hills that we climbed were just seasons out of time. And then Rod McEwen did a version of it where I could really hear the lyrics. Adieu, Emile, my trusted friend. We've known each other since we were nine or ten. The song is about a man on his deathbed talking to his wife, saying we had joy, we had fun, but the world's, you know, I'm going to die. Skinned our hearts and skinned our knees. it's hard to die. And in the song, he's, he's talking about his wife, and I, I forgive you, my wife, for cheating on me my whole life with other men. All kinds of stuff. It's really dark. And he is just a desperate man. And when Rod McEwen does it, it's really unbelievable. He, he really takes it to the next level. He gets really upset at the end. All our lives we had fun. We had seasons in the sun. But the stars we could reach were just starfish on the beach. He, he takes himself seriously, but he keeps it so it appeals to everybody. And he's not afraid to go anywhere with his lyrics, and I I love that. My second would be As I Love My Own. Your hair climbing down around your ear. I love how he is going in the lyrics. He goes, you know, he's appreciating your hair first. He's appreciating your smile. And then at the end, he's appreciating your body. You know, he's taking it all the way there. Your body moving down to mine Is like the coupling of the pale November cloud And it's pretty cool because when you're listening to it with certain people, it gets a little uncomfortable sometimes. But, you know, Rod doesn't care about that. You know, he's down with the hair, the face, 
the smile and, and the body. And I love your body. Uh, my third would be uh, The World I Used to Know. A lot of Rod's songs are about a man who's just had it, who's hitting the road, and he really writes about that stuff well. And that song in particular, I think he really nails it. The version I did, I love the way that song turned out on the record. Someday some old familiar He's talking to a woman, and he's going to leave the woman. But, you know, until that day, I'll be your man and love away your troubles if I can. You know, he's half out the door. And I have to move along. But till I do, I'll stay a while. I think, I think that Rod McEwen was probably mocked a lot. I, I do believe that a lot of people uh, referred to him as writing pop, transparent poetry and stuff like that. And yeah, in the 80s, when I was growing up, I probably wouldn't have dug it so much. It's definitely one of those things as you get older and as you, you know, when you've loved and lost like Rod has, you can uh, relate to it more. And uh, I just heard it and I loved it. I could, I could feel it. Aaron Freeman, a.k.a. Gene Ween. His album of Rod McEwen covers is called Marvelous Clouds, and it comes out May 8th. And Brendan, here's some trivia uh-huh. for you. McEwen wrote the lyrics to Seasons in the Sun, okay. adapted from the original tune by the great Belgian singer Jacques Brel. Oh, wow. We both like All right. And lest someone think that Aaron is only attracted to dark music. That is a dark song. It is a dark song. I recommend they listen to some of Aaron's earlier works with his band Ween, okay. like Strap on That Jammy Pack, <laughs> Sketches of Winkle, and my favorite, Pork Roll, Egg, and Cheese. He's had a varied career. It's a beautiful that song. Aaron Freeman. Folks, we are going to take a break. Coming up, Beastie Boy Mike D unveils the fine art show he's curating, and the creator of The Daily Show unveils herself. When the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, food writer Gustavo Ariano tells us how Mexican food spread across America. And comedian Liz Winstead, creator of The Daily Show, bears all. Well, she recalls having bared all. To be specific. In the past. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, his name is Michael Diamond, a.k.a. Mike D. In 1981, he founded a punk band that became hip-hop trio The Beastie Boys. They are still together, and in December they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. His latest title is Curator of the Massive Art, Music, and Food Exhibition Transmission. It opened this week at MOCA, the Museum of Contemporary Art in L.A. I met up with him there to talk about it. And Mike, welcome. Thank you. Let's talk about this exhibit. We're sitting in an office just off a huge jumbo-sized warehouse space that is filled with all these artists' installations that you've curated. There's a lot of kind of bold visuals. There's a heavy musical motif. And it occurred to me walking through it that this may be the closest physical manifestation we will ever get of the inside of your brain. Wow, that that is scary. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I had never thought of it in such light. Um, I mean, I think it's interesting that you put kind of in the center of this a coffee bar. It's an installation piece, but it's also a functioning coffee bar. I also know that you happen to be like a big coffee fanatic. Well, since it is the basically the only um, drug or stimulant that I'm involved with, I'm a big fan. 
Um, no, I, I, I'm a bit of a coffee fanatic. Um, but it honestly came out of having been many times at museums and feeling like, gosh, if I just had a good espresso right now, I would have another hour in me to continue taking in the exhibit or exhibits that are here. Really, I honestly just wanted to remedy that. And I was very naive. I didn't know it was going to be, I, I kind of met a lot of resistance from the museum in terms of having a coffee bar. Why? The whole idea of beverage around fine art is, you know, this is not to be done. So we rectified it by just having, you can only have coffee within the coffee bar here. And actually that's how as a coffee snob, that's how I think it should be presented and consumed anyway. And really, coffee is not to be consumed on the go. Well, I'm going to take a lot of flack on this one. But for me, yes, I prefer it in the is it porcelain, China. China, I guess. China. I don't know what the correct term So much for being a snob. I don't want the barista community to come after me on this one. They will. And they, oh, I will. I'm going to get lynched from both sides. The to-go coffee advocates and the barista community are both going to hang me up. Man, you're doomed. Um, you've also got, there's, there's a food truck that you've commissioned outside, Roy Choi's uh, famous Kogi food truck. You've got a pop-up bookstore as part of the exhibit. No, exactly. That was my concept when I pitched on this whole thing. But I was like, in LA, you've got to sort of have a, a place that checks all the boxes. This city is really hard to get people to get out of their homes into their cars. And actually, I'd never thought about this. I, <laughs> this is a terrible thing to say, but I think we've created an art shopping mall. See, now not a lot of people would admit to that. We have a food court. We have a bookstore. Well, that's it, that's interesting because the comparison I was going to make was to a party. There was, I mean, you have one of your central installations here is a giant wooden crate that is basically filled with speakers blasting dub music. It has all the trappings of a party. No, I, well, I, I do think it is a party. And I think it's, it's um, like this last Saturday night, it's going to be a little crude for radio right now, but people were shaking their ass at the museum. <laughs> well, but now it's interesting to me, though. Now, you brought up this is a shopping mall. It's a party. I think there are people in the art world that would say this is the death of the museum. Yeah, I just think there's going to be people exactly that want to see this space dedicated to a, probably a more academic pursuit. And, and what is the defense of this as being a legitimate use of this space? Why don't you have this at a club? You know, I think this is our club. To me, that, my, my fear, I guess, actually when I got approached about curating a show was that it would end up being this sort of a static museum-like installation with people sort of filing through silently and being something that people went to one time, checked it off their list, never returned to again. And what I hope to do is create something that's actually kind of a really living social and cultural center in a sense. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you at least one question about the Beasties. You were inducted into the Rock Hall of Fame. In a recent interview, you said that it was more substantial and emotional than you anticipated. What evoked that for you? I guess in, I, I had a misperception, honestly, of it. I thought it was going to be, you know, I've been in a band that's received some accolades. <laughs> Numerous accolades. No, you know, we've gotten whatever we've gotten our MTV awards, our Grammys were accoladed. So I, I kind of categorized it just being sort of another one of those things. And actually, it's a, it's honestly a lot more. You know, you're you have this. Wow, gosh, who would have thunk it moment? Here we were, these 15, 16 year olds running around downtown New York City, listening to music too loud, 
playing music too loud, going to see shows too young, staying out too late to see these shows. And thankfully, having grown up in the in the city of New York, being exposed to all kinds of great music, yeah. punk, hip hop, Latin, jazz, everything, that it, somehow it actually became something. And you, I mean, there was a point very early on after your first world tour where, I mean, my understanding is that the band was on very shaky ground. You could have ended very early, potentially. Oh, oh it was dicey. No, yeah, no, it was, I mean, I think that's kind of what everyone would have expected, and we weren't that far off from fulfilling that. And then Hall of Fame, it's amazing. Let me, we have two questions that we ask everyone on the show. The first of them is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? Probably, um, so, are you, are you guys still making music? I feel like I've been getting asked that question for about 20 years now. Meaning that like they just haven't been keeping up with you and they just assume that you stopped a long time ago? Yeah, there's a lot of people I think that thought, like they're like, the last tape you put out was in the 80s, right? <laughs> Is that really true? I mean, like it's not like you're invisible or anything. You put out movies and all sorts of stuff. Uh, listen, I'm just, telling, I'm just <laughs> telling it how I see it. But anyway, here's, a, here's sort of the reverse of that. Tell us something that we don't know. Just something that'll sort of like get the juices flowing at a dinner party that will get people talking. I guess, see, to me, when I think about something that's going to fuel discussion at a dinner party, I think of it things in a question format. All right. I feel very fortunate in that I've been able to meet a lot of creative people. And I'm kind of always the two things that I'm actually usually the most curious about with creative people are what that source of inspiration is and what their work method is. Like, okay, do you just show up at the studio every day? Have you found that the artists that you favor the most have something similar to their process? No, no. I, I mean, I guess basically, though at times the best inspirations are seemingly effortless, work is always, <laughs> work unfortunately is always efforted. There's no two ways around it. Mike D, the exhibit he curated called Transmission, is at MoCA's Geffen Contemporary Building in L.A. through May 6th, and admission is free. Oh, wow. That's right. I was going to say, the reason that his show is not actually a party is that you have to pay to get in, but there you go. Yeah, it's free. Although, I will say, most parties aren't sponsored by Mercedes-Benz, as this is. Oh, yeah. Which could explain why it's free. That could explain it. My, My parties are sponsored by my 2001 Honda Civic. Nice. to eavesdrop. Liz Winstead is a performer and the co-creator of The Daily Show, but before that she was a fledgling comic living in her hometown of Minneapolis. Today she tells us a dinner party worthy story about the gig that exposed her to a broader audience. So my very first paying gig in comedy was at a venue in Minneapolis called First Avenue, which is not a comedy venue per se. It's mostly a music venue. Now most people would know this venue as the club that was featured in Prince's movie Purple Rain. A very huge thing that was going on in the 1980s was was something called the Great Pretenders, which was a air guitar contest. And in Minneapolis, it was giant. And they got all the local celebrities to be the judges. And so my very first paying gig was that I was the host of the finals of the Great Pretenders, which I thought was the Oscars. It was so incredible. And of course it was the 80s, so I went to a thrift store and got this 
crazy used wedding dress. And I look like a total ridiculous human being. It was August, hot dog days of August. The air conditioning was out at the club. I've got layers and layers and layers of this dress on. And I'm sweating through the whole thing. So I thought, you know what? What could go wrong in a club full of 1,500 people if I just take off my tights and go commando underneath these layers and layers and layers of wedding dress? Well, of course nothing. So I'm announcing the first act. I got a few laps. I set up the night. Things were going great. And behind me is a giant video screen. As I introduce the first act, the video screen rolls up. And so the video screen slowly goes up behind me. And I realize the back of this massive wedding dress is rolling up in the screen. And the mechanism is pulling the dress. And the dress is ripping in the front. And all of a sudden, I realize I'm three inches off the ground. And the mechanism breaks. And there I am, hanging, naked, in front of 1,500 people. And they're all laughing. And it felt like that scene in the movie Carrie where she's just standing there and she doesn't know what to do. But I realized that if I do nothing, this moment will define me forever. So I just kept talking. I just kept telling jokes. And that Carrie metaphor kept running in my head. And so I finally just said, well, I guess you can't see my dirty pillows at least. And then the audience burst out laughing. And I thought, um, oh, oh, wow, they're laughing. I'm not sure if they're laughing at me. So I just kept talking. I kept going kind of with the carry metaphor. Well, uh, I'm waiting for the bucket of pig's blood. Is that what's next? And then they were laughing again. And I heard one guy in the audience say, oh, my God, I think she planned this. They were laughing. And I felt like I had won them over. But I was pretty much out of carry jokes. And at that moment, thank God, the stage manager came up the stairs, cut my mic, and he whispers in my ear, I have to cut you out of the dress. And then the dress is going to fall and you're going to put my shirt on. And thank God he had a long cowboy shirt on and I had some combat boots on, so it all worked out. So he buttoned me up in his shirt, ripped the miles of fabric out of the screen, and boom, the screen came back down. The video was rolling. He signaled to the booth, get her mic back on, and the audience was mine. Comedian Liz Winstead sharing a story from her upcoming book of essays, Liz Free or Die. You're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. And now it's time for the main course where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. And this week our topic is Mexican food. Okay, it's not groundbreaking, but it's tasty. Well, you know, that's the thing about Mexican food. It is so ubiquitous that it barely registers as groundbreaking or farm cuisine. That's true. But obviously that wasn't always the case. I guess there was a sad taco-less time in this country. It's tough to think about. It's awful. But writer Gustavo Arellano did anyway, which is fortunate for us. His new book is called Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America. And recently I met up with him to eat some mole. We're at Gelaguetza. Gelaguetza is a Oaxacan-style restaurant. And in my, in my book, Taco USA, I talk about the pioneering role that Gelaguetza had in spreading regional Mexican food across the United States. Gelaguetza started around you know, the early 1990s selling a specific type of food, not your combo platter, not your tacos and enchiladas, but Oaxaca-style food, moles, 
enfrijoladas, which is basically a humongous tortilla smeared with black bean paste, chapulines, grasshoppers. And this was a cuisine that the only people who would eat it would be Oaxacan immigrants and their bosses. Eventually, though, America wised up to the fact that Oaxacan food is amazing and that the regional Mexican traditions were spectacular. On its own, I would talk about Gelaguetza, the fact that they are pioneering, but the food is absolutely amazing. And then, and then in the modern generation, the children of Fernando Lopez, the founder of Gelaguetza, Bricia and Fernando Jr., they open up a mezcal bar. So you're hearing me half drunk on mezcal right now talking about how good the food is. You're not allowed to tell them that. Oh, yes, I am. No, the audience doesn't need to know that. Sure, sure. No, no, okay. I am absolutely sober drinking mezcal. You just wrote a book on Mexican food. Is there really Mexican food anymore? Isn't it really just completely part of American cuisine? Yeah, so the 1890s is when Americans first honestly fell in love with Mexican food. We fell in love with tamales, and we fell in love with uh, what used to be known as chile con carne, but now it's known as chili. And what happened was at the 1893 Chicago World's Fair, you had tamale men from San Francisco enrapturing Americans, selling their chicken tamales from San Francisco. On the other hand, you had chile con carne, chili, being canned by the Chicago canning concerns, and they also started canning the, chile, the, the tamales. They spread across the United States along with tamale men. So that was the decade where it started, the 1890s. A lot of people would think that tacos were actually the entry point, but you're saying tamales are actually... Yeah, there, there's this misconception that Mexican food in this country didn't become popular until the spread of fast food tacos, like Taco Bell's, Del Taco, and the like. But really, Mexican food, from the moment Americans have been able to taste Mexican food, we've been obsessed with it. We've loved it. And yeah, the 1890s, tamale men were a staple of the United States for decades. I mean, I mean, no less an icon than Robert Johnson. Hot tamales and the red hot. Yeah, you got them for sale. Hot tamales and the red hot. Yeah, you got them for sale. Hot tamales and the red hot. At the beginning of your book, you talk about some of the contributions Mexico has made to food in general. Before you even get to tacos and burritos, there's stuff like vanilla. I thought it was important in my book to tell people, just remind people about the history of what Mexico gave to the world. And really, it's the, th- the two best ingredients are chocolate, which everyone knows, and vanilla, which most people don't know. Vanilla comes from what's now the state of Veracruz, from a particular tribe of Mexican indigenous folks called the Totonacs, the Totonacos, and they're the ones who kept this secret of how to manually pollinate the vanilla pod and then have vanilla. It wasn't until the 1860s that somebody discovered how to do it. Then, of course, from there, vanilla is now so essential to Mexican food. And the saddest thing, of course, when we describe something as vanilla, we describe it as being bland, but vanilla itself... It's a magnificent flavor, and the Totonacs are such a great, vibrant culture. So you grew up with Mexican food. Uh, what was the most surprising thing while putting together this book? The revelation that I had was, when I started off, I was a zealot. I figured, okay, there's real Mexican food, and there's white people Mexican food. But really, Mexican food is Mexican food is Mexican food. That doesn't mean it's all good. Taco Bell, I do not like. They do not do their food good. But you write lovingly about Taco Bell. Well, I give it its respect. Taco Bell was the gateway drug for Americans to realize, hey, there's this thing called a taco. And the great thing with Americans, God bless their souls, they know that there's always going to be a better Mexican food than what's in front of them. So when Americans were eating canned tamales, they knew, okay, there has to be something better than canned tamales. This is good, but there's something better. So same thing with Taco Bell. They knew there was something better than the hard shell taco. And it came a couple of decades later with soft tacos and now with regional types of tacos. And it's, it's Americans. There's a lot of stereotypes that Americans have about Mexican food. Oh, it gives you gas. Oh, Montezuma's revenge. Blah, blah, blah. But that's just an undercurrent. 
the, the, the main narrative with Mexican food in this country is it's amazing. And Americans will always want to try Mex better Mexican food than the, what they had in front of them or what they had before. Don't you feel bad about exposing all the secrets of Mexican food? I mean, don't you, do you want to keep anything for yourself? Oh, oh, we have our dishes that you Americans will never discover. But eventually we'll say, you know what? Here, have it. Because ultimately we do prosper in the end. There's so many dishes that Americans have yet to realize from Mexico. You guys still don't know about our licuados, Mexican smoothies with our fruits, mame and guanabana and all that. Our paletas, our Mexican popsicles. There's so many dishes we still have to introduce you to. And that's one thing that still has a hint in this country, Mexican sweets. We love quince. You Americans, you still don't know quince. Quince is an absolutely amazing dish. The only people who realize it are the Brits and the Argies. And come on, America. If the Brits and the Argies could beat you on quince, what the hell is going on here? So, Rico, Gustavo's book is really cool. It's filled with tons of history. I'm sure. He also predicts that the next big Mexican food trend yep. will be the torta, right. meat, beans, and toppings stuffed into a torpedo-shaped French roll. Interesting. So that does that make it French next? Frex? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's mensch. <laughs> <laughs> that word is already taken. Uh, folks, we are going to take a break. When we come back, we speak with Bess Kargman, director of a new documentary about ballet, and the great-grandchildren of Emily Post are here to answer your etiquette questions. When the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we hear a new track from indie band The Walkmen. They have a new album out soon. Right. And later, Bess Kargman, director of the new ballet documentary First Position, tells us about the quandary of the parent who has sired a ballet dancer. They could have gone on some really amazing family vacations, or they could encourage their kids to do ballet. It's a tough choice, but first, it's time for etiquette. Each week, you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this time around are Lizzie Post and Daniel Post Senning of the Emily Post Institute. They are the great-great-grandkids of Emily Post, co-authors of Emily Post Etiquette, the 18th edition, and I believe they are now the most frequent guests ever on our program. Welcome to the Hall of Fame. Hip, hip, hooray! We want medals. Uh, we have we have trophies. Will that be all right? Bumper stickers. One bad genetic joke will do. That's right. These are, we we've often said that you have genetic on account of your lineage. That was kind of rude of you to ask for a gift, uh, Lizzie. I've learned nothing else. Yeah, <laughs> get over it. <laughs> so lesson one: etiquette experts are allowed to be impolite. Yeah. But let's move on. We have some questions for you guys from our audience. I think Brendan has the first one. That's right. This comes from David, I believe, Bon in Fort Collins, Colorado, and I like this question a lot. Right. When is it okay, if ever, to wear your sunglasses propped up on your head? <laughs> a couple of data points. One, I work in a large corporation where some people have their sunglasses propped on their head every day. Two, we were recently at a formal wedding in a church and we counted six men out of 200 people that had sunglasses on top of their heads <laughs> for the entire service. Seems like an odd bit of fashion. Is this rude or just lame? What does he think about people who, who wear them while doing recorded sessions with the dinner party? Because oh. they're on my head right now. Whoa. Is that right? <laughs> Interesting. So, well, sunglass wearing. So does that mean Lizzie? it's okay, Lizzie? Yeah. I think that when you get into the professional setting, you might want to pull back. And in church, maybe I'd, I'd try to take them off my head. But I don't actually see it as a big deal. I don't think it's all that tacky. I have a problem when people are indoors wearing sunglasses and 
trying to talk to someone. I feel like once you come inside, you want to mm. take the sunglasses off. Yeah, mm. are you playing poker with me right now? <laughs> you know, what is it that you're hiding? Yeah, exactly. Like, what's what's your deal? My, my mother, who's often caught with multiple reading glasses yeah. perched on the top of her head, <laughs> uh, <laughs> is a big one for seeing people's eyes. And as yeah. a child, she always wanted me to have a haircut where she could see my eyes. And I know that's one of Lizzie's big things with people wearing hats, that yeah, she really yeah. likes to look I into like people's to be able eyes. to see their eyes. So, yeah, most formal situations. A really formal wedding or, or work, professional attire, it's definitely something well, to be aware of. I'm with David, though. I mean, honestly, sunglasses are a tool. So this would be like wearing like a life vest, you know, when you're outside of a boat. <laughs> or a or stethoscope. Like, or just like a bike helmet on while you're in the staff meeting. A little less awkward, but yeah. <laughs> you know, I think it's also just kind of one of those style trend things. Like, for a while, it was, you know, tuck them into the V of your shirt. I think mm. guys and gals right now are just wearing them up on their head. Oh, it's, man, I think it's rude. It feels too casual for me. Well, it's a good thing it's our job. <laughs> it's, <yeah. laughs> That's true. That's true. And I tend to I'm fall kidding. a little more on that side. Yeah, where, Dan's where more I, with you guys. You know, why would you take your hat off? It's it's a certain deferential gesture. All right, so David, I think bottom line, air towards sunglasses in pocket for formal occasions at least. Here's <laughs> Erica in Austin with a question. She writes, my boyfriend has been in graduate school long Longer than Hugo Chavez has been in power. <laughs> wow, she's not bitter. <laughs> Man, no. really. Shockingly, she writes, this is a great source of tension for him and it is ruining our sex life. Wow. When in public, I am constantly trying to calm his nerves when a stranger has the courage to ask him the dreadful question, when are you graduating? Is there a polite way to tell people that those kinds of questions are politically incorrect and downright hurtful, or should my boyfriend simply hurry up and graduate? <laughs> that is a complex question. Was, is this question really meant for, like, Dan Savage over at Savage yeah. Love? <laughs> like... a lot. I thought this was going to be a Dan Savage-type question. It becomes a question right. about asking questions. It does. Mm -hmm. It does. You know, this is one where it's the situation to them is personal. Yeah. But to people who don't really know what's going on, you just you can't take it that personally when they ask, when are you graduating? I think it's a, a question of interest as opposed to asking if, if you guys are going to get pregnant or if you've gotten pregnant yet. Yeah. You know, like that sort yeah. of thing, which really can be can be really prying. Sounds like the problem is that a question that simple could actually cause such a dreadful yes. <laughs> response. That's, yeah. that's yeah, where we need Dan Savage. <laughs> and I'll dive in here. It's it's funny. This is a standard that, that that's a little different in America and say in Europe. In Europe, it's really mm -hmm. impolite to ask someone what their profession is. In America, it's often the first thing that, that people ask each yeah, other when they do? meet. What do you do? Yeah. And being in graduate school for a long time is essentially the what do you do question. Here in the States, that tends to be accepted territory. So. Although I find on the West Coast, it's less common to ask people what they do than it is on the East Coast. Because everybody's in show business. <laughs> yeah, people have sunglasses behind their head, so they assume they don't have a job. All right, we have one last question, and this comes from Seth in Oregon. He asks, I'm throwing a birthday party for my five-year-old at a playground. I'm planning to give out cupcakes rather than spending an unreasonable amount of time cutting cake and distributing it. What should I do with a person at the party who has an unreasonable disdain for cupcakes? <laughs> Anybody who's listened to our show knows Brendan has somewhat of an unreasonable disdain for cupcakes. I want to give this question to you, but I feel like I should respond uh, as someone who does have maybe a, a pretty reasonable disdain for cupcakes. Five-year-olds are allowed to eat cupcakes. 
They are, okay. You know, yeah. I, my problem is adults eating cupcakes. So, so there you anyway, go. proceed. What is it about the cupcake that at five should be the age cap? No, I think 12 yeah. is the age cap. Okay, 12. That's all right. I, I would like to get into this a little <laughs> bit. I'm, <laughs> I just, I'm just going to sit back and watch this unfold. <laughs> I haven't heard this. I haven't, I haven't gotten that far in listening to past shows. I think Americans infantilize themselves. The juvenilization of culture. Yes. Yes, and adults eating cupcakes, I think, is just a, a real example of that. And then there's just all these other... It's, it's overpriced and you're taking away something that should be a treat for a child and you're turning it into just this everyday occurrence. Okay. I just wanted to say, by the way, for the record, I don't like cupcakes because I like pie better. Oh. So we're all on the cupcake record. What's the proper way to play this? (laughs) Indeed. So you don't have to eat everything you're served, but you're supposed to try it. Oh, wow. You go that far. I say, you know what? I think that, I mean, first of all, it's a, it's a party for kids. So I think that the adults don't it's even have to answer. partake in the baked goods if they don't want to at mm, all. There we go. Um, I think as the person serving it, I'm not going to worry about this one person who doesn't like cupcakes. I'm going to serve them up. Yeah. If it's me, I'm actually going to bake them. <laughs> um. I read the question. It was the kid that, was, that didn't like the cupcake. No, Seth only it... writes about, quote, a person at the party. The person. Yeah. Okay. I think person in, in, indicates the adult. I, I would one. say, Seth, don't invite that jerk. <laughs> like, <what>? Yeah. <laughs> who doesn't like cupcakes? I know. What a creep. Sorry. Oh, man. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Sending, thank you once again for adjudicating uh, all of these issues for us. Truly a pleasure. <laughs> thank you, guys. So, Rico, I always imagine the Posts living in some pristine mansion compound in Vermont where, you know, everyone uses the right fork and has just the right thing to say. They have to struggle to come up with advice for each other because they're all just perfectly poised. Exactly. In fact, I wonder wonder if it's possible to be so polite that it's actually rude (laughs) because you make everyone look bad. You know, visitors just get sad. You know, I don't think you have to worry about that. Uh, folks, if you have an actual etiquette problem, contact us via dinnerpartydownload.org and tell us what it is, won't you? Or you can call the DPD hotline, a.k.a. the phone in my cubicle. The number is 213-621-3554. And now, time for Chattering Class. This is where we're schooled by an expert in some dinner party-worthy topic. This week, the subject is ballet, and our teacher is Bess Kargman. She directed, produced, and just about everything else to the documentary First Position, which opens this week. It follows several young people as they compete to attend and then hopefully win the prestigious Youth Grand Prix Dance Competition. And Bess, welcome. Thank you so much. Love the show. So uh, before we talk about the dance world, really quickly about this film, when I speak to documentarians... Often the question I ask is, how did they get their subjects to open up to them? And for this film, I almost have the opposite question, because these kids are so sweet and relatable, and you just want them all to do well. How did you keep from opening up too much to them, from getting totally embroiled in their lives? Um, my background is in journalism, so I knew that I didn't want to become their friends, mm-hmm. because I knew that then I'd lose any sort of objectivity, right. then I wouldn't want to show them cry, and I wouldn't want to show this world as it really is. Yeah, which is can be brutal. They knew that I was going to show everything. Um, but 
for one of the dancers to come up to me and say to me, you've tarnished my reputation. I mean, that'd be mortifying. Yeah, yeah, of course. So I'm thrilled that they all loved it. In fact, one of the kids in the film, his name is Jules. He has a, a lot of ups and downs during the film, and he elbowed me after the premiere, and he said, Bess, do you know what my favorite part of the whole <laughs> movie is? In rehearsal, when you showed me fall on my face. <laughs> so, that is partially that kid, though. He does seem fairly indomitable, that, that particular That is kid. Jules, yes. All right, you used to be uh, a ballet dancer in your early youth. What In making this film, what was the thing that most surprised you that you maybe didn't know or realize when you were actually participating in this world? Well, I didn't realize this when I was young because I wasn't the parent. Uh, parents spend so much money. I mean, one mother joked that she could have had three Mercedes at this point. I was really surprised to see things like you'll go through a pair of shoes a day sometimes. Some dancers have such strong feet that they will go through an $80 pair of point shoes a day. The costs are scary. Each tutu probably takes about 100 hours to make, and it's too expensive to go out there and buy these things all the time. A properly made tutu will run you between fifteen and $2,500. For me, that's a wedding dress. You know, that's not a 14-year-old's ballet costume. And I was just, you know, thinking to myself throughout the year we filmed was, they could have gone on some really amazing <laughs> family vacations or they could encourage their kids to do ballet. All right, now let me ask you the flip of the previous question. As someone who had danced before, what are some things you did know about the ballet world that maybe you wanted the rest of the world to know about? Not all skinny ballerinas are anorexic. <laughs> Not all ballet dancers are white. Not all ballet dancers are rich. Not all stage parents are psycho. There are so many things I wanted to disprove. Well, let's start with the food because that is one of the things that really struck me in the movie. They eat a lot according to them. Well, if you spent six hours a day in the ballet studio, you could eat like a linebacker and not look like a linebacker. Um, there's a lot of exercise involved. There's a lot of calorie burnage, for sure. Ballet is extremely rigorous and athletic. People don't realize ballet dancers get injured just as often as professional athletes, and the severity of their injuries, it, it's identical. And injuries do play a huge role, actually, in the, in the, especially in the second half of the movie. And one thing which I found so fascinating, which is a commonality between all of the young dancers in this film, and they range between the ages of 10 and 17, was they're not complainers. Hmm. I would have to rip the shoes off of them in order to see their terrible feet. I mean, yeah. these are gnarly feet. <laughs> But the way they work their bodies, they just don't complain. They understand this comes with the territory. Did you find anything common to all these kids that explains why at such a young age they would have such drive and want to subject themselves to this kind of thing? I think they all take pleasure in expressing themselves with their bodies in a way that the average human being doesn't <laughs> necessarily. Actually, the most interesting thing one of them said to me once was, you know how you need air to breathe? Well, I need ballet to live. You take that away from me, and I don't want to wake up tomorrow morning. Now, this is a lot of these kids are not ever going to get a chance to be professional dancers. And even if they are, their careers could be quite short. What do they do when that time comes and they don't, especially if they need it to live, you know? What do, they, what do you do when you can't breathe anymore? No matter what, ballet is so demanding on the body that you really can't be 65 and still do it professionally. They 
become dance teachers or a lot of them put off their education. That's one of the reasons why after a certain age I decided to stop pursuing ballet. When you are a young teenager, you really have to decide whether you want to spend more hours a day in the dance studio than an academic classroom Mm -hmm. because it requires so many hours a day in the studio. So a lot of them put off their education and the day they retire, they can pursue that education finally. I mean, when you retire at the age of 35, you're pretty young. (laughs) So you can do anything, really. You got a lot more to do. That's your sequel. That's my sequel. It's called Second Position. (laughs) I'm going to do it in 10 years. Jules will become a amazing entrepreneur in Silicon Valley, and everyone else will still be able to put their ankles behind their ears. So, Rico, that was a fascinating interview. Thank you. I had no idea that dancers go through a pair of shoes a day. Well, not all of them do, but yeah, it happens. When you guys were discussing that, I just pictured this mountain of torn pink satin, like somewhere in America. You and podiatrists everywhere, I think, are having that <laughs> Yeah, the monument to their, to their profession. Folks, uh, if just hearing about those kids made your feet sore, sit down and give your hands a workout. Head to our website. The address is dinnerpartydownload.org. And that's the dinner party for this week. Tune in next week for our first ever all-music episode featuring loads of musical greats, including Willie Nelson, Henry Rollins, Cass McCombs, and Motown songwriting legend Lamont Dozier. A wide-ranging music festival tailored for your ears. Special thanks to Jackson Musker, the assistant producer of the dinner party. Thanks also to Ravi Carmen, Peter Clowney, Chris Peters, Judy McAlpin, and our friends at Public Radio's business show, Marketplace. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to, or returning from, this week's dinner parties. Here's a piece of heaven. It's a new song from the Walkmen. Their full-length album, also called Heaven, comes out May 29th. Bon appétit.
I'm Rico Galliano. And I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Thanks for listening. Oh, man. That is the fifth mic you've blown out this week. Sorry, dude. This is getting expensive. I can't help it. I'm a strong speaker.